everyone. I'm Arlene Dickinson. Thanks for joining me on my podcast. It's absolutely critical that we support small business in Canada, and I am proud of my partnership with TELUS, who always puts owners first. This October, TELUS is celebrating Small Business Month by supporting owners with special savings. Get the latest tech to help transform your business with limited time offers. Visit telus.com backslash smallbusinessmonth to learn more. Let's all support small business and continue to stand with owners. On this week's episode of Reinvention, I speak with Cardinal Official. Now, this is a man who has done so much to inspire the Canadian rap hip-hop scene. He really is the OG of that scene. Listen to him and his story and listen to his perspective on how we can reinvent ourselves more effectively as a society. On this week's episode, I am talking to Cardinal Official, who is um, a wonderful person who I happened to meet at a Raptors game. Well, I think I might have met you before then, but I'd met you like where I really got to sit beside you. And when we were sitting beside each other, you were trying to teach me some is it it's not slang. What 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 would it be? Like some rapper talk or what is it? What do you call it? It depends on what circle you move in. It depends on what circle you move in, but yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess, you know, just, just slang that some of us use. So the funny part, everyone, was that as he was teaching me these words, I had like, I couldn't get the words right and I didn't have the right accent. And he and the friend he was with were dying laughing at me because I was just, <laughs> I was just such a bad white impersonation of anything. Well, you, you know what? I was, listen, here's, here's the thing. Never mind bad white impersonation at the time, just bad period. Just <laughs> <laughs> but, but I was going to comment though, when you said my name today, I immediately was going to say, Oh my, look at this. Cause you pronounced my name exactly the way that it's supposed to sound. Whereas most people, my name has probably been one of the most butchered names on the planet, like depending on what country you go to. Oh, there you go. Well, that's, well, let's, let's start there. Let's talk about your name because your birth name, you, you started with your birth name and I don't know if you share your birth name or not. Yeah, Jason um, is fine. Mm-hmm. Jason is your birth name. Jason Drew, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and then you went from that to Kool-Aid, mm-hmm. right? Very, very terrible name when I look back because I was a little kid and I was like, I am going to be the aid to being cool. So I am cool aid. Boo. We can boo now. But at the time, I thought I was so clever. I was like, yeah. (laughs) I got this, man. (laughs) Everybody's going to love this. (laughs) How long did Kool-Aid last? I was going to say that didn't last very long. (laughs) No? No. I've had to listen. I've had the world's worst names ever. And to be completely honest, until you understand the history of where Cardinal Official came from, I still arguably have one of the worst, one of the worst names ever. But I was Kool-Aid. I was Gumby D because I had a Gumby hairstyle where, you know, my hair was, was, was cut like Gumby. Mind you, I don't know where the D came from, but I was Gumby D. Um, <laughs> what else was I? Um, I was craving for us for a small point, small period in time. Um, craving is patois for greedy. And I got that name the honest way, uh, 
I was at my cousin's birthday party and they had all the food stored upstairs, like all the snacks and stuff yeah. away from the kids. And of yeah. course I snuck up there and ate half of it. So <laughs> um, I was craving for a while. And then after Kool-Aid and believe it or not, as terrible as Kool-Aid, the name Kool-Aid is, there was another rapper in Toronto named Kool-Aid as well, who we were actually, um, uh, we're actually friends now, but there was actually another Kool-Aid. So I was like, all right, can't be Kool-Aid anymore. Um, then I was, uh, Cardinal Rich, Richie Lou, which is, um, just a terrible way of saying Cardinal Richelieu. But, you know, that name came from, from high school when we were studying, uh, when we were studying history. And of course, Cardinal Richelieu was a dictator, very terrible person, but he had something that was called the political testament of Cardinal Richelieu. And part of it that was amazing was like, although he used it for evil, the way that he stayed in power was his relationship, you know, the, the way that uh, he maintained his relationship with the common folks. So, you know, part of his rules was like, you know, never put yourself on a pedestal, always appear to be, you know, on the same level as everybody else that you're dealing with uh, within society. And a few other things that for him, he used it kind of to deceive people and in order to stay in power. But for me, I always thought it was, I looked at it a different type of way and I, I related it to the way that I moved around and the way that I wanted to uh, kind of exist as a quote unquote celebrity. And mind you, at the time that I made the name, I was far from a celebrity, but you know, wish, wishful thinking, I was just, you know, thinking to myself, well, if I, if, and when I get to my goals, this is how I want to live my life. And I think I've kind of always, um, uh, you know, that's always been my default, you know, at this point in time, it's just, you know, in my subconscious, I don't even think about it, but that's kind of always the way that I've, that I've lived is to, um, I don't want to say rebuke the, you know, the way in which people view celebrities, but I think that I've managed to, um, effectively carry myself in such a way that like when I meet fans or when I meet, they don't even have to be fans, just when I meet people, you know, people come up to me and they'll affectionately just call me Cardi. And they're like, I feel like I've grown up with you. And I've never met these people before in my life. But it's a total different reaction that, you know, that that you will have, um, you know, as opposed to like, if you meet, you know, like a Jay-Z or somebody else who is like, you know, for the in terms of public access, like, it's very limited, you know, what I'm saying so it's like, the um, you know, when you do have access to these people, it's this massive deal. And, you know, you look at these people in a certain type of way. Um, but I think for me, I've, I've kind of liked the fact that, um, uh, the energy that surrounds me is, has been like 99% positive. It's always been a great interaction. And, and you are so accessible. I got to tell you a bit of a story. Like, so when I told my daughter, Morena, who actually is the producer of the podcast that mm -hmm. I was going to be speaking with you. She was like uber excited and, and it just relates back to what you just said. And, and so she remembers, uh, and I'm actually reading, she sent me this note. She, she remembers going to an outdoor concert of yours in Calgary, like way back in the day. Nice. And she told me how she snuck backstage <laughs> and, and she, met, she, she met you and baby blue sound crew. Oh, wow. Now, 
Uh, now, now, I am not, like, I don't have a clue, you know, like, I'm not well versed in the rap hip hop scene that way. So I had to look up Baby Blue Sound Crew mm-hmm. and see how they got commercially successful after collaborating with you and Julie Black, who's been on the podcast, and Sean Paul on a song. And yes. she said that you took time with her and actually signed her hat and nice. that you were just so kind and gracious to her back then. And uh, she, she has never forgotten that. So your whole point about being accessible and not being kind of this celebrity who is, you know, so big that you can't remember kind of the, that what you do this for. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people you do it for matters. And so I wanted to, she said to tell, make sure that I told you that she remembers that like it was yesterday. And that's got to be like, what, 20 years ago? Maybe? 20 years ago. Yeah, maybe even, maybe even 21 years ago. Yeah. I, was on, I was only six then, so uh, <laughs> I barely remember, but. <laughs> yeah, me too. I don't even know how I have a daughter old enough to have a memory like that. I can't, I can't possibly be true. <laughs> so... <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about your upbringing. Like what got you to becoming, you know, a a rap hip hop star? Like what was it that got you where you are, Carnell? Like where did you, you started, you were, your parents are Jamaican immigrants. I know that. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me a little bit about your growing up years and what that was like. Man, I mean, to be honest, there's so many layers and there are so many, uh, so many different things but i'll try and i'll try and see if i can just give you the cole's notes um growing up in the neighborhood that i grew up in at the you know maybe the first 13 years of my life or so i grew up in um it was actually right on the border of north york and east york but it was a it's a place called flemington park and you know i lived with both of my parents until they split up when i was about nine and you know growing up there hip-hop it's very difficult to explain to some people that like there are they're not well they're kids to us but kids young adults that have grown up some of them hip-hop has always been a part of their life whether it's in a commercial for spaghettios or on the radio or tv like all these things are just it's just regular it's second nature kind of the same way i liken it to the same way that some people in America, there's going to be a generation of kids that grew up with the first president that they knew being a being a black man. Now, when I was a kid, this was it almost seemed like, yeah, right, like super impossible, never would happen that you would see an American president that happened to be a person of color. It's the same way that growing up in Canada, we felt about hip hop. You know, there was a time when hip hop was really literally and figuratively was this this underground existence so in order to you know in our neighborhood it was the prevalent music it was the music of choice so i mean we grew up with you know when friends and family would go to uh you know go to new york or go to somewhere in the states and they'd come back with these cassette tapes that they recorded off the radio of all this hip-hop that's how it circulated amongst the you know around the neighborhood because we didn't have the outlets here that, you know, that played and supported hip hop. Um, Sad to kind of say we still kind of don't, but we really (laughs) didn't, you know, in those days. So, you know, it was uh, for a lot of years, it was an underground thing, but it was, you know, something that I absolutely just fell in love with. You know, I was introduced to it really um, through my cousin. 
um, I remember, I still remember staring just in complete awe and amazement at his uh, his ghetto blaster. We used to call it those big, those big, uh, those big. Um, what do you call it? Um, I don't even know what the actual real term is, but you know those portable big, those big old portable stereo systems that they used to have, and you'll see them in like some of the old school hip hop videos where they used to carry it on their shoulders. So I remember. I remember you know, that actually. <laughs> yeah, and I remember being in his room, and it might have been like 1983, and just listening to this, and I was like this is just, this is it. You know what I mean? And that was, um, there's a, there's a movie that's called Brown Sugar and they're throughout the movie, you know, they say, you know, when's the first time you fell in love with hip hop. And for me, that was the first time that I really fell in love with hip hop. And ironically, it was a female MC. Um, it was, uh, Roxanne Shantae. So, you know, uh, I only say ironic because we associate hip hop with a lot of male bravado and, that whole nine, but you know, for me, I've always just liked whoever was amazing, whether they were men or women. Um, but you know, fast forward and you know, years of me doing what kids do, you know, uh, kind of just memorizing our favorite songs and reciting it around the house or the neighborhood or whatever. And I remember my mom, um, you know, she encouraged me to actually write my first rap. Oh, wow. Yeah, she encouraged me to write my my first song. My mom uh, worked for the Board of Education. So, you know, she was like, you know, why don't you know, why don't you, you know, take a stab at writing an original song? And I think I might have been in grade seven uh, when I wrote my first when I wrote my first song. And uh, my mom, she used to teach uh, in schools. Well, one of the things she used to teach, uh, they used to be called like uh black heritage class which basically was like a class that would teach like black history and the culture of black people throughout the diaspora so um this was back when it's it's so interesting how years ago it feels like uh there were so many different things that at least within toronto that we actually used to have within the education system that was you know full of diversity and you know, inclusion, because I remember, you know, there was in that school that I went to, not only did they have, you know, a black heritage class where you could learn all types of things about, uh, you know, black folks outside of just slavery, but we also had, you know, we had a, a multicultural class. There was, you could learn Cantonese, like all types of different things. So it's interesting growing up, I had such a, I guess, uh, um, a great opportunity to like really, you know, expand not just what I was learning, but how I was learning it. But anyways, um, you know, between my mom and somebody at the community center, a guy by the name of Herman Ellis, who also encouraged us to, you know, enter our first rap competition. And it was a citywide competition. Um, at the time, uh, the mayor had something called the Mayor's Task Force on Drugs. And they had this citywide competition to see who could write the best anti-drug rap song. So anyways, my, my group um, that we made up at the time, we ended up winning the citywide contest. And, uh, you know, at the time, the, the prize was, you know, an appearance on, uh, on much music. And, you know, Maestro Fresh West, who had at that time just went double platinum, uh, he was going to introduce us at our show at Ontario Place. So <laughs> that's big time. This is big oh, time. What? Oh my gosh! Listen, at that time, that's that was it. Like we yeah. made it. 
We made How it. Old so, How old were you at that point? Uh, I want to say I was like 13, 13 or okay. 15. Yeah. So this is like major, major, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We hit the, listen, I, you know, I remember seeing, you know, the little much clip that was maybe a minute long, you know what I'm saying? Where it's like they, you know, they showed our performance and the judges and us winning and the whole nine. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I think that those series of events are what led up to me saying to myself, huh, maybe this is more than just a little, you know, part-time thing that we do after school. You know what I mean? Um, when we were actually showing that potential and people were like, oh, wait a minute, these kids might have something. So, yeah. And you went from there and, and now you've gone down to open for like 50 Cent and Jay-Z and like, like you, you, like your career has just, it, it's really been phenomenal. I was looking at all of the kind of, some of the history of all the things you've done. And mm -hmm. I think back to your mom saying to you at that age, you know, why don't you just write your own music and, mm -hmm. and the influence that our parents can have on us in terms of giving us confidence to do something that we hadn't thought of ourselves. I mean, I love that story. Did, did you, did you, are you grateful to her? Like, is that, uh, I mean, it, listen, if you know my mom, you have to, you have to be mindful of how you give her public praise, uh, because she'll always remind me of it. So that's, that's all, that's all I need is, oh, I listened to the podcast the other day. And I'm glad that she reminded you that I am the one that's responsible <laughs> for your I love her already. I love your mom. <laughs> for your entire career. Listen, I'll tell you what. There's a couple of things to note. At that time, um, you know that it was that it was pure and came from a real place. Because it's not like as a mother, she's like, yeah, you know, maybe I should nurture this in my son because there's there's a possibility that something could come of it. Not yeah. at all. Like there weren't any, there, there, there were no um, examples of people from Canada. And even at the time, you know, not, not even so much in the States either. Like, but there weren't really examples of people who were able to have a sustainable career doing rap. Right. So, but, you know, at that time, like my mom encouraging me to, you know, to get into it and write my own stuff was really just because she actually took the time to understand that, listen, this is what my son is into. So why don't I, you know, actually have him do, be progressive? You know what I mean? Listen, these, this day and age, I'm sure people have grown up seeing myself and Drake and this and that. And they're like, of course, if my son shows any potential, he could be the next Drake. He could be the next, you know, whomever. So now, you know, I'm sure that there are several stories like that. But at that time, believe me when I say unheard of, you know? Yeah, no, and I, I mean, listen, I think, I think that's, if you think about, and then you go on to at 13 to be on Much Music and that clip. And then at 14, you performed live on stage for the first time, correct? Uh, yes. It was with Nelson Mandela in attendance. Yes, 12 or 13, somewhere around there, yeah. About the same time age. So what was that like to, to perform in front of Nelson Mandela, just following his relationship? Actually, you know what, so sorry, you brought it up and I had to think about it, but I'm sure that that Nelson Mandela performance, um, 
I wish I could remember the the timeline again. I was, was only 1990. six. But... It was 1990. Yep. No, I think I think we won the contest in the same year. So yeah. it might have been that that contest might have helped us be able to get onto that stage. I don't know if there's a direct correlation, yeah. but at the same time, like you know, they did choose us as very young kids to perform for him when he came uh, when he came to the city to the country, and it's like that that was at the time um you know remember i said you know my mom had taught those classes so we learned all about uh obviously nelson mandela but it was in our in the books and not too often do you get to see somebody that's in one of the books that you're reading and studying you know not so often do you get to see the real person in in real life you know what i mean close enough to touch and um it was a massive deal for us then, but it's interesting. It's, you know, as an adult, it's, it's even bigger now looking back. Cause I think I couldn't even grasp how important that moment was. You know, my group at the time was called YBP, which stood for young black and positive. And, you know, we had a lot of like empowering messages at the time. And it's very, it's, it's very interesting. Context is everything, but you know, I think at that time, as you know, as kids, we were we were a bit mature for our age, you know, um, I think more mature than a lot of the other kids. But it's I think it's because everybody that was in that group, like uh, my mom was an educator, uh, one of the other guys, his mom was an educator and who actually went on to take over for my mom and teach that class. Um, and then also the other the other um guy that was in that group uh his father was they were originally from the states and uh they came up they came up and moved to toronto and it's that's a whole other podcast in itself but you know his father was a, a vietnam vet a, a black veteran and you know they came here and i remember originally they lived in a in a hostel in a homeless shelter and you know when I met him, they were, they were living there. And because of all of our shared experiences, like we had a very interesting outlook on the world. So at a very young age, we were dealing with a lot of, a lot of topics that unfortunately we're still dealing with today. Like we were dealing with those things as, as kids and trying to understand. And, and I was, uh, you know, my, my family will oftentimes let me know that even as a very small boy, when they used to see things like, uh, my my aunt tells the story about how, you know, I'd watch the news with them back when apartheid was in, in, in full swing and how, you know, as a little kid of like whatever age that was like, you know, four or five and six years old, how I used to say to them, like, just really break it down to the basics and say, well, how can they treat other human beings like this and like how those things affected me at such a young age. So I guess this is something that's kind of been in my DNA in terms of like, um, understanding, but also like bearing the burden and trying to figure out ways to use platforms, you know, in order to not just inform, but inform and educate, but to also, you know, do better. And uh, I guess just always wanting to leave the world in a better place um, after each and every opportunity. So whether that's, you know, performing a song, whether that's an interview or whatever it is, hoping that whoever listens, whoever watches, whoever sees, um, 
you know, can have a better understanding. But anyways, I digress. Going back to the, the Mandela performance, you know, being able to perform um, our song, and I think it's, <laughs> it's probably a song called Black is Back. Um, <laughs> I should never have left. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm sure people looked at us and they're like, oh, these guys are cute, but actually, you know, saying a positive message. That's awesome. But, you know, being able to shake his hand and at the time also Winnie Mandela was with him and getting to meet them backstage and things like that. Like that was an, it was an incredible experience and definitely life-changing and, uh, you know, one that I'm super proud of that, you know, when my kids, you know, learn more about Nelson Mandela and so forth. And they're like, dad, you got to perform for him? Like that is some, that is just, you know, something just incredible. But I do live quite the enchanted life. And there are many, I'm blessed to have many, many, many instances like that. So, you know, that's, that's why, you know, when you ask me, how am I doing? I'm like, listen, better than most, can't complain. Well, you know, when I think about your career and, and anyone who's listening to this podcast is, is going to understand the importance of your career in the hip hop scene in Canada. I mean, you, you are, you are known frequently as Canada's hip hop ambassador. I mean, you, you constantly, you, all respect to Drake, but listen, you were the OG, you were the guy who got this really the scene going and, and, and really, and not just going Cardinal, but also you've infused this philanthropic kind of nature around making sure, like you just said, that you're doing good. And I, I have a ton of respect for that because listen, I, I don't really understand the hip hop scene. It's not, you know, like it's not something I grew up with. And, but when I listen to your music, a, your, you, your, very, your music's very distinctive. I always know it's you when I hear you on the, on the radio or listen to your songs or, and I always, I always am appreciative of it in a different way than I am with, you know, maybe perhaps other hip hop artists. And I think it's because I know you came from like a creation perspective. You came from starting something at a time when it, as you said, in Canada, where it just didn't exist when your mom was talking to you, that you, you really helped to in, embed in, in Canadian culture, this notion of how black culture and hip hop actually really matters. And, and while this podcast wasn't about, I wanted to talk about your own reinvention. I, I think it would be a mistake for us not to talk about a nation's reinvention with you because you spend so much time on social media. I mean, I love your posts on social media. I, I, I watch them and read them and I, I I'm, I'm so impressed by your vulnerability that you display in particular. I'm, I'm impressed by how you, are un not afraid, but not unafraid. I mean, more how, how clear you are around what really matters in the world and how the world needs to reinvent itself. And Black Lives Matter has really just kind of boiled that all up to the surface. But your voice was there before BLM became a movement and it continues to be there even stronger through it. And if you had to think about reinvention as it relates to um, racial injustice and as it relates to kind of how we need to think about music and creativity and how it can actually play a significant role in helping people think differently about um, cultural shifts and, and, and justice. What, sorry, it's a lot of questions. I, I, I've got so much I want to say to you about this and I'm not sure I'm articulating it well, but what I want to say in a simple question is what, when you, in the middle of BLM and all the things you've done in your career to make this an important 
aspect of who you are, the, the causes, the, the fact you created the circle, the, the, the challenges you've had relative to making sure that you bring hip hop to people's psyche. What do you think has to happen in our world to make, to reinvent ourselves so that we can be more tolerant, we can be more understanding, we can be more human? It's a big question. Well, I know it's a, it, listen, it's a big question. And I think, I love the reinvention question, but I think, um, and, I, and I don't want to make this sound cliche, but if you are somebody that follows me or will follow me, you'll see that every day we have the opportunity for reinvention. Right. Um, you know, and I'm, not, and I'm not saying this for you not to say it because I understand the context, but these are all things that I think about constantly. And, you know, what, what I was saying is it's like, I'll be honest, humans, sometimes we are the most terrible of, of creations, but we also have the ability to be the best of creations at the same time. And the irony is that's how I think of America. I think of, <laughs> I think of America as a place where you have some of the best opportunities in the world, but at the same time, ironically, you have some of the worst atrocities that have happened to man and that continue to happen to man in the same place. It's probably that is honestly the reason why I have remained in Canada. And I don't want to say this and not sound unpatriotic because I love where I am. I just don't like winter, if we're just being completely <laughs> honest. And I know I'm injecting like I'm trying to make a little bit light of the situation, but it's partly true. Because yeah. If America was a better place, I'm just being honest. I'm more of a Florida type, you know, California. You know, my parents are Jamaican. Like, I love heat. I don't love winter. So, you know, forever and a day, I'm always like, oh, my gosh, what? I need to move. But then, to be honest, when I look at the world, there's no better place that I would love to be than Canada. You know, yeah. and I've literally traveled the world. I don't know if there's any place that I haven't been to except except maybe Hawaii. Um, that's probably the only place, ironically, that I haven't been to that I would love to go to is Hawaii. But I've been I've been everywhere. Romania, Japan, China, Mexico, you know, France, uh, you know, countries I can't pronounce and Canada resoundingly for me gets my, it gets the biggest vote in terms of a place that I would like to be. But with that being said, uh, traveling, I also know that I am a citizen of the world. I'm a citizen of the globe. And I also know that the platforms that I have, I have the ability to affect people in some of the most remote places on the planet. Some people that have no idea of what we're going through here in Toronto and here in Canada, uh, here in North America, but even furthermore, some people have no idea and they don't, under they don't understand the plight of Black people that live throughout the diaspora. So for me, I use every day literally as a way to reinvent the way that I can be the bridge. I've, I've realized, I think probably when I uh, turned 40, that um, purpose is very big for me, purpose and legacy. And before I was 40, I, I tell you, I was just, I was a moving locomotive, like I was a train that was just going and going and going. Then I got to 40 and you're faced with mortality and you're like, maybe, uh, <laughs> you know, I have to think about, uh, you know, the, what, what does the rest of my life look like? But also like, 
you know, what am I leaving behind? You know what I'm saying? Like, what is Cardinal's legacy? And are people going to understand what his purpose is? And I've become a lot more, I always have been, but a lot more intentional and purpose driven. And I think once you understand your purpose, you, you constantly have to figure out the best ways to communicate your purpose to the, to the world. And I think, you know, you were talking about, you know, social media and, you know, some of the posts that I do and things of that nature. And then, you know, obviously within my own life, sure, there are, you know, philanthropic uh, things that uh, I've been involved with for a long time and continue to be involved with. But I, I really think that it's, that it's important because that whole, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Like I, I think that was put in place by those grumpy old dogs that just want to remain grumpy and old, you know? I really think that anybody, um, intelligent people anyway, I think intelligent people, they might be reluctant to change, but it's not impossible. And I think that if you are able to communicate to people in a language that they understand, I really think it's through um, an inability to communicate our points of view and our beliefs this is where the conflict comes in, mm -hmm. you know? Um, you, you know, you mentioned BLM and it's interesting because, you know, the whole, everything that's happening right now is kind of painted with this Black Lives Matter brush. Um, I don't even know if everybody subscribes necessarily to, and this is again, it's a lot of layers. So, you know, Black Lives Matter, it actually did have founders and actually was a group, you know, that was, uh, that was formed. But now I think, you know, through social media and hashtags, everything kind of lives under that umbrella or that's where everybody thinks that it is. And it's, you know, everything is, is Black Lives Matter. And even just within the name, again, it's the either the inability to communicate the meaning of it or for people, maybe so people don't even understand what it is. And again, that's where some of the conflict comes in because I'm sure there are many people listening to this podcast that um, still, as simple as it is, don't even get the concept. And it's like, you know, we've gone, we've gone to them. How many fundraisers have we gone to, like fundraisers for breast cancer awareness or um you know for hiv awareness or something else could you imagine if we went to you know a breast cancer um fundraiser we went to a breast cancer dinner and we're sitting down and you know somebody else comes in and just starts yelling well there's prostate cancer as well like sure there is nobody said there wasn't but right now we're just <laughs> we're here to breast cancer we're here to support breast cancer and i think that's that is the easiest way to for people to understand what black lives matter is about it's not saying that the other lives don't matter but what people don't understand is that uh unfortunately like voluntarily and systematically um black people in varying degrees um have been stifled um there are things in place that you know because the quote unquote the average person you know lives their day and they're like i don't know what these people are yelling about i don't know what the anger is i don't understand the frustration i get up and i'm able to go to work and as they say the good old pull up my bootstraps and just get to it and do it but you know those people also have 
the ability and the privilege to not face some of the obstacles that black people have. And again, even though the stories are different, it's the same way even as a man that I had to take a step back and understand when a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of women that were fighting for women's rights and for us to really understand the plight of women and you know, especially over, you know, over the last bunch of years with the Me Too movement and so forth, is where as a man, I'm like, huh, I had no idea, you know, and you start to hear the stories of, of very strong and accomplished women, but then they, they tell you the things that they had to do to get to that stage. And for me, and a lot of the men that are in my life, we had to, you know, go back and sit down and say, huh, well, how am I complicit in that? You know, how have I played a part? What can I do you know, to then make, uh, you know, the world that I live in more inclusive of women, you know, and make sure that, you know, they are front of mind whenever having discussions, whenever making decisions, you know, things of that nature. How can we help to empower them and make things a bit more inclusive and, and, and equal? And I think that in that way, it's this, that's the same kind of a plight that we're having right now with, with Black people to where there's some people that really uh, didn't get it and they didn't really understand until they started to see the atrocities of like, you know, George Floyd being obviously the most uh, recently, uh, well, that's arguable too, but heartbreaking atrocity that happened. There was a lot of stories of personal stories to where people that are in my life called crying because for them, they're like, I finally get it. I'm so sorry that I didn't see it before. And the thing that is tough for us is these are feelings that we a lot of us have lived with our entire lives it's trauma that we've had to deal with and in order to function within society we've had to suppress them so that the trauma doesn't block you from from trying to be your best and do your best and i think what's happening right now is it's interesting because there's a lot of reconciliation that is happening just within society period and not just with black people with you know, First Nations people, with women, with, you know, the pride community, so many different people. There's a reconciliation, there's understanding, there's education. And I think right now it's a, there's a great window of opportunity for, you know, when people are actually listening and hearing what's happening. And, you know, again, I'm just going to bring that back to that old dog learning new tricks. I think we are at a time where we understand, like, if we don't, address a lot of what is happening and, and a lot of the pain and suffering that people are going through, whether uh, it's inadvertently or on purpose, like, you know, we have a duty as humans um, to do better, you know, and figure out ways that moving forward that we can make things better. You know, um, Bob Marley said, if you're a big tree, we're a small axe. And these are like big problems, but we can chip away little by little. So I think with me and my dedication to um, not just social media, but, you know, obviously being a, you know, being a rapper, but also being an executive now, I have the, the opportunity um, to help change infrastructure. You know, I have the ability and, and uh, you know, the responsibility and the power to be able to use my voice that will do things um, so that people that come after us will have a way better go at it, you know, and we'll have a, a different existence. And maybe these conversations one day, I don't know if it's our grandkids or our great grandkids, but, you know, as long, well, 
I was going to say, as long as we don't totally destroy the environment and go out like the dinosaurs, as long as we're actually still able to, to function on the planet, uh, you know, the hope and the goal is that they won't be having these conversations or it'll be in a different context, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, that's really well said. I think the whole notion of reinvention is a societal thing that we all need to be thinking about. And you, you said a couple of things that I want to just underline. One is you talk about purpose a lot. And I, I, I do as well, Cardinal, because I think so many people talk about, well, follow your passion. I, yeah, sure, but it's really about following your purpose and finding out what that is that means something to you, that gets you out of bed every day, that actually you can then say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on that because it is incremental. And, you know, uh, people are impatient. They want instant gratification. They want to see change happen immediately, but it does take time. It takes many of us saying these things over and over and over again and demonstrating what this can be if we just all focus on it together. And I think this is what part of reinvention is, is it saying things out loud that you want to see changed and then having the courage to actually do things about them. So it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to demonstrate it. But your position as an executive in, in, in the industry, as a senior person in the industry, your ability to now hire, um, promote, um, support, influence, you know, like the, the culture of how people think about this is so critical. I, I don't know if you know, but I was born in South Africa and we, and so, and I've been back to Africa many times. And, you know, one of the things that I, I always marvel at is you go to the Nagorogoro crater where you see the, really the birthplace supposedly of, of mankind is from there. Mm -hmm. This is a, this is black history. <laughs> we, you know, this is where we come from. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I find it, I, I was raised, my, my, my parents raised me, I mean, everyone was equal. How, how dare we consider that we were better than anyone, like no matter who we were, right? That we were all equal. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that upbringing, but it is, it is really, um, it's also a privilege I know to be able to say that, right? Mm -hmm. to, to see it from a position of being a, a, a white person. So I have so much respect for, I think just the voice that you have and the, um, I mean, I'm not sure I'm going to be a hip hop fan. I got to be honest. Like I, <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> I but, am. But, you know, listen, let me put it to you quickly. Um, <laughs> and and I'm sure you and I'm sure you know. But again, it's all about uh, it's all about time management. I think it's the same way. It's the same way that I might have a friend. Listen, and this is a whole other thing. Jamaicans, for some reason, love Kenny Rogers and other such folks. So <laughs> for me, Kenny Rogers is not necessarily who I don't wake up in the morning and I'm like, you know what, let me put on some Kenny. But <laughs> at the same time, there are certain things to where, you know, I have older family members that are like, you got to listen to this song and you listen to it. and You're like, yo, that is a wicked song. You know, or you listen to Johnny Cash or others, and I'm like, huh, okay, I get it. So it's not necessarily my go-to, but there are, um, you know, amazing people that I've learned to have appreciation yes. for. Now, listen, rap, hip-hop was meant to be rebellious music. So it wasn't necessarily meant, like, how it's in the mainstream right now. This, this is not how it started out. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's kind of like when you think about, uh, you know, hardcore heavy metal music you know thrasher music stuff of that nature like it's not necessarily meant for you know 
for when you're into it for your mom to listen to or your aunts or your grandparents like this is it's 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 uh, adrenaline pumping music and that's how hip-hop started out so what i would say now though that we are in the mainstream and there's so many different different types you know what maybe offline i might give you a few people to listen to to where you're like ah okay cardi i i, I this i can get with all the other mess i'm not i'm not into it and i and i understand <laughs> And I understand. I, I'm, I'm, in, fair. I'm in for that because to your, you know, maybe we can just end there because when you, when we talk about reinventing and you said anybody at any age can reinvent, you can reinvent your music taste. You can reinvent how you think, how you dress, how you think about wor- the mm-hmm. world, how you, how you portray yourself. Um, but the, the most important part of it, I, I really, I really believe is knowing who you are, kind of knowing what your purpose is in life and, and knowing what your skills are and then going out into the world and applying it in, in the midst of what is really a shit show right now. I mean, let's be honest, this is a shit show out there and it's, it's not, it's depressing. It's, it's scary. It's, it's frightening. And, and, and people tend to turtle in those conditions. They tend to want to go inwards as opposed to actually standing up and, and shouting about what they want to see changed. And now if ever we need your voice at the table, we need to hear from, people like you. Um, I'd like to think I can also be a, a part of that. I think there's many other people. I spoke to Julie Black the other day, you know, like just such, such, such. So I was going to say, how, how was that? Because listen, Julie, I've known her since she was 16. And, you know, my eyebrows still sweat when I have conversations with her sometimes. So, <laughs> so how, how was it? Was it intense? It, it, you know, she, it was really, she had some really she said a lot of profound things. She was really actually great. She's very nice. much like you, very articulate, but lots of energy, man. Like she, she could run circles around everybody. Like she's yep. got tons of energy and <laughs> <laughs> she was great. But I, I know that, you know, part of the, that whole group of you that kind of grew up together and, and created the scene together. And um, you were really at the forefront of that Carnell. So I, I think Canada owes you a, a big debt of gratitude. And I'm going to like hip hop more simply because I like you and Julie and everyone else, and I'm going to do my best. <laughs> well, listen, if, if, I could ju- if I could just say one last thing, what I would say, and it's a very, listen, these times, it's much easier for us to, to like you said, just kind of like take a couple steps back and be like, I'm going to leave that over there. Yeah. But more so than I don't, it doesn't matter like what color you are. I don't want, I wouldn't want for you to feel guilted into doing something. I would want for people listening and anybody that feels that they are good people, you do things because, because it's the right thing to do, you know, and kind of end of sentence. You can't like, if there are things that you read about that upset you, you really gotta, you kind of got to dig deep and say, well, why does that upset me? Why, why am I not okay with this? And I think a lot of times we don't, we don't want to hold up the mirror and look at ourselves and say, oh man, well, like, do I play a part in this? People hate that. I hate it sometimes. Like when somebody's like, yeah, there's all this, whatever it is that's going on. And yeah, Cardinal, you're a part of it. And you feel you know, when you're pointed out, you me, what did I do? You know what I mean? And we get defensive. And I think the, the, again, the reason and the intention gets lost. And what I want is for, you know, when people hear conversations like the ones that we're having, and by the way, I love following you as well. 
um, because you are somebody that's awesome. And, you know, similar to me, um, there are times when you're serious and oftentimes there are times when you have the best type of comedy. Um, but, you know, I think people like us that are trying to be better, like one of my slogans in life is like, no better, do better, be better. That's it. You know, and I think if everybody really internalized that and they woke up every day thinking, whether it's small reinvention or large reinvention, but you know what? I know better. I'm going to do better and be better. That is the, the best way for all of us to exist. Because if all of us individually, and we can only control ourselves, I can't control anybody else, but I can control myself. Right. But it, if I can at least be that beacon of light for other people and other people then also take on that same attitude, that is how we're going to see real changes happen. And that's how we're going to be uh, you know, the best of a society and a society that can be proud of the things that we stood behind and the things that we advocate for and the things, you know, that we promote to the rest of the, to the rest of the world. Yeah. I, I have nothing to add to that. That's, that's beautifully said. And I could have talked to you for a lot longer. I just really enjoy part two. Part two. There's always, maybe, always a part two. <laughs> maybe we need to do a regular podcast just in general. Part now, I, I learned a I lot. Really I mean, I certainly well, we understood. We can talk about that next. So here's a guy right, who is cool. one of the most cool. celebrated well, and talented and humble artists our country has. He has really created an opportunity for others to follow in his footsteps. And he has created an opportunity for us to see the world through different eyes. He talked to me a little bit about getting me to open up my mind to hip hop a little bit more than I have been. And trust me, I'm going to be doing that. I'm going to be listening to the songs and the playlists that he sends me. But also just in terms of the importance of purpose and how our lives really come to a point where we have to be able to look back on them and say, did we make a real difference? Cardinal is making a real difference, not just in his industry, but to the causes that actually matter and are close and dear to him, but also really important to all of us in general. Pay attention to his social feeds, follow them, because you'll learn a lot just as I have, and I know you're going to discover and uncover a whole new side of what is actually happening in the music scene in Canada and how important a role Cardinal plays in it. Thanks for sharing your story with us, Cardinal. I really enjoyed our conversation. This podcast is made possible by the great folks at Venture Communications. Thanks to our engineers, writers, producers, and all the folks who work really hard to bring you these great stories of reinventions each and every week.